Welcome to another episode of Let's Discuss It Podcast. I'm sitting here with Miss Anna Marie Cook from the I Mind Mental Health and Wellness. How you doing, ma'am? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you so much for coming yes, in. I you. really appreciate thank it. Thank y'all for having me. So let's discuss mental health. Okay. Why did you jump into the mental health field on what you're doing right now? Well, I didn't really jump into it necessarily. I started off as a medical nurse practitioner. Okay. Um, but I did, I mean, I think anywhere that you work in healthcare that you are going to ha- have contact with people that have mental health issues. And mm-hmm. so um, I saw a, b- a need for that. And so I just kind of ended up um, initially working in the geriatric population. And then last year, um, after working outpatient mental health for another company, I decided to open my own clinic um, just to provide more services to our community because there aren't very many here in Jackson. How often do you feel mental health is always overlooked as far as in in what you're doing right now, as far as like thinking about how important it really is and people not taking it as serious as they should? Um, I think often that it's overlooked. And I think part of that is because there is that stigma that people don't necessarily want to reach out for help because they're afraid that they're going to be judged or people mm-hmm. are going to think that they're crazy or, you know, just kind of all that stigma that goes with that. Um, and I think part of it is that we're so busy sometimes that people just don't necessarily take the time to take care of themselves. Um, and so I think that kind of a combination of those things. And then, of course, a lack of resources as well. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. A lot of people don't understand that sometimes... So I know people that have an issue with maybe a personality issue or a disorder or, you know, something like schizophrenia, and they don't know how to reach out without being embarrassed or, you know, they're too prideful to reach out. Mm-hmm. How do you kind of approach that situation if you know a situation like that? Well, I feel like um, I, I kind of feel like I kind of just have a knack for people to kind of just be able to open up to me like I'm very laid back and easy to talk to Mm -hmm. um but sometimes it's a situation like they have maybe reached out for help in the past and like had a bad experience and so they kind of are at that point you know really don't want to reach out for help or they feel like there isn't anyone that can help them and so really just um being a partner with them you know, and letting them come in and kind of say whatever they have to say and not being judgmental. Um, And then just really like talking about options with them and not necessarily trying to push any certain medicine or therapy or whatever, but just kind of saying, you know, here's your options and kind of leaving it up to them of what what they want to do. What kind of services does your business uh, offer? Um, So there's me. So I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner. So I do therapy um, and medicines. Medication management is probably more of a specialty, but we always include some psychotherapy, which is like, um, you know, talking about your thought patterns and how to change that and maybe trauma that you've been through. And then we also uh, have a therapist. Um, His name is Aaron and he is does offers talk therapy so basically i kind of my specialty is the medication side and then we also have therapy how do you as far as like the medication and maybe maybe you can answer this for me i had a friend who has um bipolar issues Mm -hmm. whether this is true or not which is why i'm asking to be a little more informed on it he um he was told to be on medication but the way the medicine made him feel made him feel a little bit out of touch with himself like it almost felt like it wasn't him um, is that something common or is oh, that kind yes. of just a, 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 a 
position, you know, like a situational thing? It's like, very common. Um, so a lot of the medicines that we use to treat mood disorders like bipolar, they definitely can have um, different side effects, whether it's like, um, like you said, not feeling themselves, like mm-hmm. changes, feeling like they're changing their personality. Um, mm-hmm. You can have a lot of weight gain and like metabolic issues with those medicines. You can have... Um, like it can affect people's sex drive, which you know for that's that's a big deal to people. And mm-hmm. so oftentimes you have a lot of non-compliance because of those side effects. Well, it's, it's, it does the pros outweigh the cons, though, in your opinion? Because I know just what you just named off. It's some people would just steer, like you said, steer away from it. Wouldn't even give it a second thought. But like for their mental health, do you ever just? Have you ever had a case that where you're like you pursued it to be like, please take this. This will make you a better person. This will help you function a little bit better yes but they refuse because of the side effects yes and i do feel like um there's been a lot of advancements in medications um and so they have come out with some newer ones that don't have nearly the side effect profile of the older ones that we used to use um and there are a lot now that i feel like don't affect your functioning as much like your ability to do things like they're not as sedating and people can kind of engage in their regular life but I mean basically in somebody that is bipolar or has schizophrenia you know I just kind of tell them like you have a disorder just like if you were a diabetic and a diabetic needs medications in order to be healthy and be able to function and have a good healthy life well it's the same thing in somebody that has that sort of disorder because basically it's a um dysfunction in your neurotransmitters and without medication i mean yeah you could possibly struggle through it Mm -hmm. um but you may not have a very good quality of life when you when when we're talking about mental illness is there a balance between young people who have it and older people or is it like older people are more likely to have it than younger people how does that go whenever you're doing well typically like if you're talking about things like bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. your typical onset of that so basically bipolar is what they used to call like manic depression that's the that now it's bipolar yes so basically in order to be diagnosed with bipolar you had to have had at least one manic episode in your life and mania is typically being like very energetic very it can be irritable anger going long periods without sleeping doing very risky things like without thinking about the consequences and so a manic episode typically will last like three to seven days. So you have to really be able to identify that manic episode. So lots of people will say, well, he's bipolar, or, you know, mm-hmm. they're so bipolar, but really they're probably not. Um, so that typically will present itself early, like in adolescence or yes. young adulthood. And schizophrenia typically has an onset of psychosis young before the age of 20. The reason why I ask is because, you know, we've seen tragedies strike, like um, the Aurora, Colorado shooting. Mm -hmm. We've seen, um, I want to say, the Virginia Tech shooting. Mm -hmm. We've seen um, just these mass murders. Also, um, the Dylan Roof in Charleston, South Carolina Mm -hmm. shooting. And you see that it's like, it's younger generates 17 to like 20. Yes. You see this. And then when you look into the background to, uh, um, you see like they've been through depression they even I think James Holmes was the one the Colorado shooting he had he tried to commit suicide at age 11 is it a is having mental illness is it connection to like these mass murders that are happening through our time 
I think so. I mean, I kind of feel like in order for somebody to be able to carry out something like that, there has to be some some sort of something mentally, you know, mm-hmm. mentally that they're unstable. I don't know how you would be able to carry out something like that. Yes, um, it may not necessarily be like schizophrenia or something, right. but there's so many different disorders. Um, and also, like, we don't really know with these people, like, have they been, been through trauma? Have they just like been bullied or, you know, like kind of what has happened to them that has led them to that point. Um, but certainly I would think that some type of mental illness plays a part mm-hmm. in those situations. Um, as far as depression, it's much, you see it a lot in teenagers and young adults. And then it's very, very prevalent as people get older Cause in social, geriatrics. Could social media be a factor in that? Oh, absolutely. Because, you, you know, you got cyberbullying nowadays, mm-hmm. and they're a lot worse uh, now than it was when I was growing up. And I believe that's a big problem. And, and as we see that they're just growing, then like Snapchat, Twitter, and Facebook, all that's just growing to the top, you know, top for you to get your apps and everything. And I believe that that could be a very factor like yeah, a, that, a big that, that factor. to me is damaging society is turned into a almost like you can be cyber bullied by anybody well and the know? suicide rate i want to say depending on what you look at has increased over the last 20 years like 50 percent mm-hmm. in the age group of like 10 to 35 and i mean what has happened in the last 20 years that has mm-hmm. you know that's technology. that's what's yeah. changed really is technology and kind of the social media mm-hmm. and um, I mean, there's kids that are committing suicide that are like six years old. Mm. Um, and so definitely I think that that plays a part in it. And um, even ADHD, mm-hmm. there's lots of correlations with screen time and ADHD. And I mean, I have kids come into my clinic, um, you know, on an iPad, like walking around with it. Like they're just so... Um, so I think that that's a big part of it is that we just need to be mindful of those things and... You know, we all like our phones and our iPads and stuff, but I think just really being aware that those things can definitely have a negative impact on, on your mental health and um, especially with kids too. Like just being mindful that long term that can have a negative impact and trying to limit mm. screen time mm, yes. because it contributes to ADHD, anxiety, depression, um, lots of research that supports that. So. Mm. I always wondered if people like when you said about the mass shoes, I always wonder if that was really a, like if they're really mentally ill or if they're using that as a cop out because that just seems like the best answer. Well, and I mean, I think like at some point, like too, again, with social media and just us having access to everything so easily, like it's it's glorified in a sense that, yeah. you know, they want to be famous for whatever and not in all cases but in some of the cases especially I think with the school shootings um, is that it's just like you see it all over the news and it's just almost like this glorified event to to these to kids and um, I don't really know how we can I don't know how we can get away from that. Jeez I think about the times when we you know when I was growing up I'm 31 now but seeing what I would consider mental illness was Charles Manson. Like I consider him mentally ill. I, mm-hmm. I considered him having some kind of, you know, mental issue for what he did. He didn't actually do the crimes, but he actually did he it. Influence, but to now, influence like, people to do it. You have to ha- have a certain kind of mind and heart to go into a place and actually murder somebody. Like you've got to be, 
something's got to be definitely wrong with you mentally to be able to handle that and cope with the fact that you're making that decision. And I, it's very disheartening, I think, yeah. that now we have, like, the active shooter drills mm-hmm. at school. Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't have that. Whenever no, we had I a tornado was, drill. Right. There was no active <laughs> yes. shooter drills, but, I mean, I think that it's necessary now. And oh. the only thing that I can wrap my mind around that really has changed that much. I mean, the suicide rate now is higher than it was, like, in the Great Depression. Mm. Like, the only thing that has changed is the technology. And we're so stressed out, I think, because we are in a million places at one time, Mm. all the time, and we're not really meant to be that way. You know, Madonna has the highest rate in suicide right now. Really? Their bullying uh, rate is... Off the, I mean, just completely off the charts. They've had more kids over the past 10 years uh, commit suicide from being in a Madonna school system, which, I mean, I'm not speaking out of turn. That's with the, it's you know, the actual fact. fact. Mm-hmm. But um, to me, I don't understand how a six-year-old would know how to commit suicide. That, to me, Social media. Me. Apparently, there's, like, mm-hmm. YouTube videos. Oh and you remember God. when that was going around that there yeah. was, like... Momo. Yeah, yeah, YouTube yeah. videos about, mm. I mean, that's that's where it's coming from, because where else would they, ha- I mean, where else would they, there's no way to access information, but I mean, you can get anything on the internet. Yeah. That's why I think as parents, like, it's very important to monitor what they're, what they're, who they're talking to and what they're doing, because kids are very vulnerable mm. and easily manipulated, um, and then I think it gets to a point where they're like afraid to go to anybody because then they're like well people aren't gonna like me if they get in trouble you know so it's I think that we just need to talk to our kids like Mm -hmm. you can go on the um, Tennessee suicide prevention website um, and there's like actually links where you can go and it tells you how to have conversations with your kids about depression and suicide and I think that those conversations need to be had by parents because it's it's a real thing and You know, I think sometimes we can kind of be in denial, but you need to have those conversations so that kids know if they start having those feelings, like they know how to process that. And like in my clinic, if I have somebody um, that comes in that I feel like has the potential to be suicidal, then we do a safety plan, um, which basically is just a plan that says in the event that their symptoms were to worsen, like, this is what we're going to do. Like, these are the people that we're going to contact, and this is what we're, you know, make sure they have access to, like, the suicide hotline and um, our local. Um, we actually, Pathways has, a like, an um, emergency room-type yeah. triage that can, for emergencies. And then the mobile crisis is, like, a 1-800 number locally that you can call, um, and they will actually do an evaluation to determine like if somebody needed to be hospitalized so say a parent i'm just gonna bring a scenario because i'm kind of curious about it so say a parent thinks that their son or child you know girl child whatever uh has some sort of mental thing going on and they bring you to them but like can they deny the service is that does that make sense like like if i suggested something can the parent say that yes they or or just the fact that like because I see, I know it's just common in older people, but like they could deny service and say, I'm okay. Or say um, it's just like a 15 year old saying, I don't need this. Yes. Or I'm fine. You know, it's just st- a stress from school or do, but you know, and then they just go back to kind of being worse because they're not getting help. Like mm-hmm. how does that, how do you. So yes, especially um, in that particular age group, you know, a lot of times they are very resistant to, mm-hmm. um, so I never um, try to 
push anything like if a parent says should I make them take it no the answer is no because if they decide that they're not going to take it they'll figure out a way not to take it Mm -hmm. so the best course of action is just to be very open with them and very supportive um kind of bargain like well if you don't want to take medicine can we at least try therapy for a while and I usually will say if, if you don't like it if you feel like it's not working then we don't have to keep doing it but usually if you can just get them to agree to trying it then it's helpful and they'll continue to do it and even with medicines usually like sometimes I'll just give them the information on the medication and say just go home google it you Mm -hmm. know think about it and then whenever you come back we'll talk about it you ever had um, a kid want help and the parents not let them get it not necessarily Um, generally by the time they get to me a lot of times they are initially seen in primary care. Okay. Like their primary care doctor has seen them and then either tried something that didn't work or just felt like it was too high acuity for them to manage, <clears throat> so they sent them to me. But most of the time, I don't think that I've ever really had a parent that didn't want to. Usually they're just desperate for help by the time that they get to me and yeah. um, willing to try whatever in order to get there. Do you usually see more people like do the medicine or go to therapy? Because as we was talking earlier about the medicine, it's like they're sort of like on autopilot kind of thing Mm -hmm. to where sometimes they don't even show emotions if they're on the medication. Yes. So do you see more people taking the medication side or just taking the therapy side? I see more people, honestly, that want the medicine because they want to be fixed quickly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And so, you know, that typically and that's our society i mean we want something right now that's going to work and therapy sometimes i really have to kind of push you know really kind of try to talk them into it because they don't want to do it um because it's time consuming and typically with therapy like you're going to meet with your therapist either weekly or every two weeks and you know sometimes it's hard for people to do that but i mean if you have somebody that's severely mentally ill that has a history of trauma or is in some type of very stressful situation. I mean, to me, therapy is a must. Mm-hmm. Like, if I'm just giving you medicine and we're not doing therapy, then then you're not going to get the full benefits of treatment. That would make a lot of sense um, as far as people dealing with those disorders. How do you really um, identify someone with schizophrenia? Um, so, basically, we have um, what's called the DSM-5, which is our diagnostic book, and so it's for healthcare providers. And well, I mean, anybody can buy a DSM 5. <laughs> but basically, I mean, the DSM 5 has listed out like diagnosis. And it will say, like, in order to qualify for a diagnosis of bipolar or schizophrenia, you have to meet criteria for A, B, and C and for this length of time. But typically for schizophrenia, like there's a lot of things like it's not just hallucinations or delusions like there's a lot of things like typically social functioning might be a little off like when they're younger Mm -hmm. um not always but most of the time like there's kind of um like family histories um history of trauma any kind of history of like severe infections as a child can be a contributing factor and um but you can also not everybody that has hallucinations is a schizophrenic you can have you can actually have severe depression with psychosis meaning that somebody gets so severely depressed that they're out of touch with reality and they can have 
hallucinations and delusions. You can have somebody that's bipolar that can become so ill that they begin to hallucinate and be out of touch with reality. Right. So you kind of just have to know, um, you kind of just have to really know that diagnostic criteria. And if you do it enough, then you kind of learn um, whenever you're doing, a, you have to do a really good history with the patient. And you kind of pick up on things that start to over time trend and then you just kind of learn how to do that but basically it's pretty black and white in our diagnostic criteria book of what they have to meet Mm -hmm. in order to meet that diagnosis unfortunately it's not always black and white Mm -hmm. when you're actually seeing the patient but um, but if you have done it long enough then you kind of just learn what what is what when you're diagnosing people yeah, I was wondering if we can actually dis, uh, discuss a myth that people are putting. I actually saw it on Facebook probably about two weeks ago. So I had a friend on Facebook that took a picture of their kid and had a, the kid was holding up a dead bird. Mm-hmm. And she was making a joke about it. She said, um, my, my kid killed a bird today. Uh, is he Michael Myers? LOL. And I'm like, that's a little, you know, that's a little demeaning to the child, first of all. But like... Is that really something, because that's kind of been talked about for the past couple of years, like when you hear about kids, you know, killing animals like a dog, a cat, mm-hmm. you know, a raccoon, whatever, anything. Is that a sort of, of, of a symptom to something deeper? Because, you know, they were trying to kind of say that. Yes, it can be. I mean, we do look at things like if there was a childhood of basically like torturing animals, yes. not just like you know shooting a squirrel out of the tree with your baby gun like this is like actually like torturing animals or like setting fires like those are kind of things that we look for not necessarily for schizophrenia but more of like uh, sociopathic behavior so yes and no I mean part of that I think is just normal childhood you know like hunting or mm-hmm. whatever, but yeah. if it's actually like torturing yeah. animals, then like that, catching them and doing it, yes, and doing torturing them, so or that would be concerning. Um, what's a sociopath? Can you give me a, the correct definition? I can Google it, but I'd like to. Well, that one's probably a little bit more difficult to define, but basically, um, they don't really have a conscience of things that they do. Like they have no like feelings of remorsefulness like difficulty in really having meaningful relationships um it's pretty rare like that's not really something that you see all the time okay so is it like sort of like they got tunnel vision kind of thing or like they're blocking out what's around them and they just kind of see what's in front of them kind of thing they could basically it would be somebody probably like some type of notorious like charles manson yeah that can do th- just these horrendous things and just literally, like, have no remorse, like, no, mm. n- not necessarily even feel like they did anything wrong. It's, yeah. like, it's like the feeling of right and wrong, like you said, conscience is completely out the window. And they and have you ever had any um, patients that have that suspect behavior in any way? Like, anything close to it? I have had um, a couple of younger patients that maybe displayed some disturbing behaviors as far as, um, like, not necessarily torturing animals, but kind of on that same level. But I don't necessarily jump to conclusions like that because that can just be, like, Mm attention-seeking behavior or 
um, just kind of a cry for help, maybe, you know, wanting somebody to pay attention to them. So yes and no. I mean, I think that those types of things can be kind of warning signs, but we don't necessarily want to label kids as, you know, early on Mm, (laughs) as being a sociopath. (laughs) Like it could just be like a phase or, you know, they could even be, like I said, depressed or they could be having a hard time at school and kids generally have a difficult time expressing themselves anyway like they don't necessarily know how to express how they're feeling and so depression can look a lot different in a kid than it does in an adult like it might not be the sadness you know it could be um not necessarily like wanting to if they've always played sports and then suddenly they don't want to do that anymore um or it can be a stomach ache you know constant not wanting to go to school like being sick all the time that kind of thing so kids kids are a little more complex to me than adults because they just don't the symptoms aren't necessarily the same as they are in adults could you get mental like a mental illness just from like like okay say somebody was happy every single day say he works at office job or something say stress gets to him say he starts drinking say then he gets depressive and then say, you know, something happens and he's like, I don't want to live. Is that, does that fall into the realm of mental illness because of that oh, yeah. small of just of stress of a job? So I'm going to go drinking and then boom, you already, you already climbed down these steps to where it would be to where you have a mental illness. So basically, I mean, it just depends like what you're describing would be like a depressive episode mm-hmm. and the drinking would be just self-medicating because you don't you're unhappy and you're trying to figure out a way to make yourself feel better. So you're self-medicating with alcohol. So basically when you look at depression, like major depression, it has to last, like it can't just last like two or three days. Like Mm -hmm. it generally has to last like at least a couple weeks and it, it impacts your functioning, like your relationships and your work and that kind of thing, which in that situation that you gave, it sounded like Mm -hmm. you could have some impact from that but you know the the main thing is like how long does it last or is the person able to come out of it on their own and get back to feeling better if it's persistent for weeks then that would definitely meet criteria for major depression okay because i kind of figured i just wanted to understand that like something so small that could just happen right then and there could lead to where you can be in a depressive or suicidal something like that and i mean sometimes like nothing happens like nothing you know people come in and they've just been like can't drag themselves out of bed like they don't want to do the things that they used to like to do they're very irritable and nothing really precipitated that like Mm. nobody they hadn't had a death like nothing major it's just a chemical imbalance in your brain and you know they can try an antidepressant and they may not have to be on an antidepressant forever just short term and then we can wean it off and they might do fine they may never have another episode again and then you have people that are kind of more chronically depressed Mm that just kind of stay depressed basically for years so you can see both but what's most common is just the um episodic depression where you have it for weeks or months and then you kind of return to your baseline so depression is typically not chronic like bipolar Mm -hmm. and schizophrenia which are more chronic conditions Mm -hmm. that are probably going to require lifelong medications in order to keep them stable I feel like depression, it gets tossed around too much. I feel like a lot of people, if things don't go their way, you know, a lot of attention seeking on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, it's always hashtag depressed. Or like, I think that overshadows the actual 
uh, fight that people have against depression who actually have it. I feel like and don't that, talk about it actually. Yeah, and don't talk about it because a lot of people just toss it around so casually, like it's just an everyday thing to just throw out there. Right. I I really think that's very out of line. I think people who do that is wrong. I don't think I think that that um that topic should be taken very seriously because it's if you ever really seen someone who has real depression it's very it's very disheartening it's very debilitating typically yeah. and when we look at like diagnosing major depression i mean like there's certain we do certain screenings and we look at like sleep i mean are they sleeping excessively mm-hmm that's a sign of depression um eating like either having a low appetite or even overeating like being a stress eater um is a sign of depression and then of course any suicidal thoughts or Mm -hmm. feel hopelessness like you don't have a purpose like you people would be better off without you those are all signs so it's not just being sad a day or two i mean it's a persistent pretty debilitating thing a lot of times Lord have mercy. If you think about when I was growing up, I, every time I heard Pathways, I always heard Crazy House or Yep, there's you know, that stigma. That and Bolivar, you know. And we yeah. you know, when we were talking about earlier. So can we kind of uh talk about Pathways and actually explain what they actually do instead of kinda of, and kind of just break the whole um what's the word to say? It's like they always have a go to stigma. stigma, the stigma of it. Can well, we- and I don't actually like have any affiliation with Pathways, but I can tell you that Pathways basically um, is owned by West Tennessee Healthcare, mm-hmm. and it's can they have um, both an outpatient, which is like my clinic, you know, an outpatient clinic, and then they have an inpatient. So somebody that's severely s- sick would need to go inpatient where they would stay for several days. Um, they have. I think most recently they have a medication-assisted treatment program for people that are, like, on opioids that are trying to come off. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they have a lot of services. I think that Pathways does kind of, has gotten kind of a bad reputation. I think part of that is because they're so, like, overwhelmed with patients that, Typically, their providers, like if they were seeing you for like med management, like they they give them basically 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. So they have, so like the nurse practitioners that do what I do have to see like four patients an hour. And so, I mean, how... How can you get the right care with that? Yeah. And so it's not necessarily the provider's fault. I mean, I think part of it is just because they're overwhelmed by needing to see so many people. So there's that. And then there's... um, they are the ones that have what I was telling you, like they have kind of like an emergency triage area. So if somebody's in crisis, you can kind of go in and get evaluated by a crisis worker there to see um, if they felt like you needed a higher level of care, like an inpatient stay. Right, right. What exactly, as far as like what you're claiming, how many people do you employ? Um, it's just myself um, and Aaron, our therapist, mm-hmm. and then our receptionist, Cheyenne. So there's just three of us. Okay. So the the services you offer for your clinic, um, what's the best out of all of the services you do? What is the best? What what makes you happy to do them? Um, I feel like we have really. I mean, whenever you see somebody that's pretty much at their lowest, yeah. Um, and then you see them back, you know, over time, and just to kind of see them get their life back. Mm. Um, and I mean, we've had people tell us that they, you know, were in a very hopeless place. So, you know, that is very rewarding. Um, and it's not that way all the time, but a lot of times, and to be honest, a lot of times people just want you to listen to them. Yeah. 
like you just like they just want to come in and you just kind of sit there and let them vent and you know give them some ideas recommendations on things that you feel like they might could do differently Um, but always I tell my patients that you know I can help you as far as medications and therapy but if you're in a situation where you're very unhappy like if you're in a very unhappy job or you're in a very unhappy relationship, mm-hmm. like there's no medication that I can give you that's going to fix that. Yeah. So you're going to have to make, you're going to have to do your part too. So we're, you know, really partnered with our patients in helping them, but also patients have to do their part too in order to get better. But I think that, um, and of course, being private practice and it being my clinic, I mean, I I don't have time restraints. I mean, yes, I can't spend two hours with the patient, but... Um, I can I can spend as long as I feel like I need to spend with them. I feel that's a very big thing dealing with someone who is dealing with mental illness is just how to talk to them. If uh, they're just trying to vent and you're too impatient to listen, it might make them feel um, uncomfortable. And I was actually watching something about these police officers who actually deal with mental illness patients. That's their job. And they go inside this house and they talk to this one person that... Um, doesn't want to go with them or is being sort of like kind of not like aggressive, but, mm-hmm. uh, and they're just sitting there, talk to them just like normal person would. And, um, I think that's a big thing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So would that be the best advice to give someone is just find ways to talk to them? Yes, definitely. I think that, you know, families need to have conversations with their kids. And then I think, um, like a lot of times if we can just get them to come in cause they kind of are afraid um, then once they come in and talk to us, like, they're fine. I mean, they'll even be like, I was so nervous about coming and doing this, and, you know, and I feel so much better. Like, it's it's really not, like, a scary, like, <laughs> I mean, basically, it's just like us here. I mean, we just talk about stuff, and I say, well, this is what, this is what I think that you, that you need to do, and then, I mean, it's really not anything to be, like, afraid about at all. You ever had a case that you just couldn't shake off after you got off work? Oh sure, all the you time. Just carry it home with you. Just, you you can't help but to do it, especially um, like kids. I think a lot of times I have a lot of kids that I see that live in foster care, mm. and so of course you know just those stories about different things that they it'll give you a new perspective on you know us complaining about things that are usually pretty irrelevant. Mm-hmm. You know, like that our Wi-Fi is not working or something. <laughs> it'll definitely give you a a different perspective on um you know, people that truly have lived through some horrific things that you can't even imagine. So what's your best advice for someone who might encounter someone with a mental illness? What, what's the best advice you can give somebody? I think um, just basically not being judgmental, you know, just listening to them, being a partner with them, not trying to force them to do something that they don't want to do. Um, and giving them options like if you're really you know concerned that they are um, very depressed and you really feel like they need professional help then maybe say you know here's the places around us that are available like you know just kind of giving them more say so in it so that you're not forcing it on them Um, but definitely if you have somebody that you feel like is suicidal there's lots of um, there's lots of resources like you can go like I was telling you that Tennessee suicide prevention um, they have a Facebook page and they have a website and there's lots of resources on there. Um, of course, my clinic, um, Pathways, there's Quinco and that 
Quinco, I'm not sure about Pathways, but Quinco is a community mental health clinic. So people that don't have any insurance, um, they can actually get like free. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So. That's amazing. Unfortunately, we don't have a ton of resources, but but we do have some. Um, There are some out there. So you just have to kind of, I think, just partner and, and in lieu of, you know, thinking about like Robin Williams and mm-hmm. and kind of these people that we have thought, you know, had the best life and you just like were so like it was unimaginable. Um, who was the Kate Spade? Oh yeah. Um I think part of that is just remembering just because somebody looks okay yeah. and they seem like they're all happy, like, you know, just make sure once in a while just ask them, Are you okay? Like, are you doing okay? Um, having those conversations with people that you care about. Because sometimes we all have to put on a happy face when in reality we may not be very happy on the inside. They may just be so miserable and yes. they don't know who to reach out to. They don't know who to talk to. They're embarrassed. And uh, I mean, I see people at my clinic from across the, I mean, I see people that are very, you know, pillars of society that are very successful, you know, down to children. So, so from all walks of life. So basically nobody is... um you know, nobody is immune from having a, a mental illness. It can happen to, to all of us. Yes, ma'am. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say before, you know, we end this? Um, anything you'd like to promote? Maybe you'd like to, you know, share about your clinic that, you know, because we have a great following. We have thousands of listeners, and we'd like to, you know, spread sure. the awareness on what you're doing. Um, so my clinic, of course, is in Jackson. It's I Mind Mental Health and Wellness. Um, and we have a Facebook page. We have a website. So we have uh, the ther- the therapist there for somebody that just wanted talk therapy. And then we have myself um, who does medicines and some therapy too. So, and then of course, like we talked about the other services in the community and you can always reach out to uh, the suicide prevention hotline. And then uh, Pathways has that m- mobile, the mobile crisis. Mm-hmm. And then Pathways also has the walk-in triage place at, if it was an emergency. Well, I really appreciate you coming in. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us, answering our questions, and just being very informative. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. (laughs) 